0: I'm a fool. I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. You just said something. Think, 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 think. And as you can tell by the music, it is time to put your thinking caps on, which means I have come to you today to tell you that God will give what the people need. (laughs) Because this is this is fun, and the reason why we do it this way is really plain and simple. Uh, I'm like Richard gear here. I ain't got no place else to go. In all honesty, humanity is so bad at, well, everything apart from God that when you start getting into my ideas or Cameron's ideas or Lou's ideas, you know what they are? They're terrible. Unless, 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 unless we can ground them in scripture. So. Hopefully, we are taking the wisdom of the Word—oh, I should coin that, put that on a t-shirt—and applying it rightly to life. Now, that starts with actually understanding what the wisdom of the Word actually is. And I think I actually used actually twice there, and I actually don't care. So we're going to keep on moving. So with all of that said, if you haven't listened to any of this and you think it might be useful to you to understand how to read your Bible in a— front-to-back manner and seeing the story unfold so that you can actually build a worldview that enables you to deal with the world writ large, then go back and listen. We went through Genesis to kind of get our foundations nailed down, and now we're just going through the rest of Scripture applying them. And by applying them, I don't mean we're going to think through every single situation that may possibly occur. What I mean is we're going to see them in action and how God works in that world. Therefore, we can understand how he would work in our world, even though our technology is different, our language is different, our interpersonal rules for interactions are different. The principles and foundations of who God is and how he operates do not change. Therefore, we can apply them individually by understanding them globally. So, with all of that march gone through, we are in 2 Samuel. When last we left intrepid Israel— Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, which leaves David the last of the anointed. So he is the Highlander. I am the last one. Actually, that was the dragon from... Dragonheart, wasn't it? But either way, both of those movies had Sean Connery, and that makes them better. So we are in 2 Samuel 1. It came about after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, because remember, that's where he went when Saul went to battle with the Philistines, that David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head, and came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground, prostrated himself. Long story short, this guy's going to explain how. He came upon Saul while Saul was dying and ran Saul through as a mercy killing. And David says, oh, you think that was supposed to be good news? Well, off with his head. (laughs) So, David demonstrating his faithfulness to the anointed of the Lord even in his death by refusing to dishonor the name of either Jonathan, Jonathan or Saul. And the chapter ends with David's praise song about both of them, mourning them because the anointed of Israel has been snuffed out. That brings you to chapter 2. It came about after the afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go? And the Lord said, To Hebron. So David went up there with his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each of his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron the men of judah came and there anointed david king over the house of judah Dun, da, da, da. so david who was anointed by samuel all those years ago way back in 1 samuel chapter 16 has now been recognized by the tribe of judah but wait there's more but abner the son of ner commander of saul's army had taken ish the son of saul and made him over i'm sorry and brought him over to mahanaim Skipping my lines there. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Now, this is only going to last for two years, which is how long Ishbosheth's reign is. But notice where the power comes from. The power doesn't come from good old IB here. That's what we're going to call Ishbosheth because I'm tired of saying Ishbosheth. The power comes from Abner, the general, the one who's actually good at his job and capable. So, we have a king over Israel and we have a king over Judah. What's going to happen next, you might ask yourself. And you would be right, because the answer is, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Anyway, you've got war at the end of the chapter that ends in Abner killing one of the brothers of Joab. That's going to become important later on. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew continually weaker. Why? Because Saul's house is being judged, David's house is being blessed. And at this point, by David's house, we are really meaning David. So, sons were born to David at Hebron. The firstborn was Ammon by, ah- by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and the second, Keliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Ma'akah the daughter of Talmai king of Geshur and the 4th Adonijah the son of Haggith and the 5th Shephatiah the son of Abital and the 6th Ithream by David's wife Eglah. Do you notice what just happened? This is literally one of the commands of Deuteronomy for the king is that he's not supposed to multiply wives. What's David doing besides trying to get with everything apparently with a skirt that isn't already claimed? So Abner realizes as this goes along that this is an untenable position. He offers terms to David. Actually, he asks David, hey, what's, what's this going to take here? This is not a good plan here. Uh, IB is incompetent. He makes accusation against Abner, so it's just not worth it. Now, the uh, price is Mihal, the first wife of David. And, you know, he's been accumulating about seven or eight others at this point, so might as well get number one back. And so that becomes agreed, and that's what goes down, and unfortunately, though, as Abner comes along, Joab has him murdered. May it fall—I'm sorry, I lost my spot there. Help if I get whatever's in my eye out of my eye, wouldn't it? When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back to the well of Sirah. but David did not know of it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asael, his brother. So Joab avenges his brother, which really shouldn't be an avenging because it was a battle that you actually went into willingly. So not really something worthy of vengeance here. And David rightly mourns Abner, but can't do anything about Joab because he basically needs him. Now, good old Ib with Abner gone is—he's in a world of hurt. So he's sitting around, and the men of the city are like, you know, might be a good idea to get in the good graces of David. So a couple of uh, never do wells get together, find Ib, kill him, and then try to bring the—well, they don't try; they bring the head to David as a proof of death, so to speak. And David. Rightly has them executed for their murder. Ishbosheth was a legitimate king, and that he was the son of Saul. Now, is he legitimate in God's sight? No. That's up to David in the military to take care of, not a couple of scumbags who have managed to sneak themselves in and apparently take care of things themselves. So all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, "Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in." And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. Dun, 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 dun. We have ourselves a king over all of God's people, and it is not the king for judgment as Saul was. Instead, this should be the king for righteousness, the picture of a righteous king. Now, notice I'm saying a picture. Is David perfectly righteous? No. He was going to avenge himself on Nabal. He's already violated the command of God given through Moses by adding multiple wives. He's already violated the Ordinance of marriage given by God in Genesis 2 by having multiple wives. So he's got a double whammy going on there. David is not perfect. Is he better than Saul? Yes. But that's not the standard. David's role is the role of all of God's people. To try to live Christ-like in this world. And even though we will fall short, we recognize that it is he who has saved us. He who is judging sin and he who is carrying us forward in sanctification. Sanctification means you're not perfect, but you're working on it. Once again, our foundations being seen in the godly and the ungodly. Who kept good old I B king of Israel for two years while David was trying to be king of Israel? And the answer is God. Now again, Saul's house is being weeded out by who? Once again, by God. He has preserved them up until now, but he's preserving them in his judgment so that he may carry it out in his time. Now, David has been vindicated. He has waited and waited and run and hidden, and yet what has he done? It has been accomplished all that was promised to him because God, the promiser, is God, the accomplisher. Now, get to the end of the chapter here. The Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. For then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines." David did so just as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Why does that matter? Remember Saul in judgment, didn't hear from God, couldn't get an answer, dies in battle. David, hearing from God, doing what God has commanded, remember what Saul did? Saul, first battle, does not do what God commanded, does not wipe out the Ammonites, does not kill Everything does not wait before offering the sacrifice. Here, David, given the battle plan, follows not in the footsteps of Saul, but follows in the footsteps of Joshua. Doing what the Lord has commanded to have victory in the battle. Now we try to move the ark. And this is where things start to get really interesting. Because we have issues with this. So David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal. To Bele Judah. There you go, rapid runner on that one. To bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So they put it on a cart, they run it along. Oz's name gets dropped because you're going to hear about him later, because what happens? They were at the threshing floor of Nakan. Uzzah reached out, to, to, uh, reach out toward the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the Ark of God. See the issue? When Israel was bringing the Ark into the, to the land, how was it traveled? The priests carried it. Why? Because you don't drop it. You don't upset it. You carry it by the poles that God has told you to build, told you to put in there, and told you to never take out of the ark, Exodus 25. Israel trying to move it by cart, trying to cut corners, trying to not do what God says, leads to problems. Is Uzzah trying to do a good thing? Yes. In his mind, he's trying to rescue the ark of God. But here's the problem. Is the ark of God in danger? And the answer is no. Might it fall? Yes. But does that mean God is lost? No, no, it doesn't. Do what you're supposed to do, the way you were supposed to do it. In other words, be patiently precise as God is precisely long-suffering. Again, one of our foundations. This is, again, sanctification at work. We are to, we are to live the way that God commands and the way that God demonstrates is right and good. When you do so, it works well. When you do not do so, things do not go well. So the ark finally makes its way back to Jerusalem. The people rejoice. Everybody's happy, happy, joy, joy. Down in their heart. Where? Down in their heart. Yeah, I know I'm mixing up songs. No, I don't care. Maybe Ryan and Stimpy should have sung more hymns and it would have been a better show. There you go. So it came about that when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Notice that. Who has secured the kingdom? The Lord. Yahweh has secured his people. Yahweh has driven out their enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. No, he isn't. How do we know that? Because Nathan didn't ask. The same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build at me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of great men who are in the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be, by, to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Notice what David wants to do. He wants to make a house for God. Meanwhile, what is God doing? When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and will establish his kingdom. I'm sorry, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words all, and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. There's a lot there. So we're going to take a second and slow down and, and try to go over some of it. Excuse me. Because you've got a double whammy going on. David wants to build a house for God. God is the one building the house for David. Not a physical house. A spiritual house. Will God have a physical house, a temple? Yes, but that temple is never supposed to be the goal. It is supposed to be the thing that gets you to the goal. So David will not be like Saul. David will have a son to rule upon the throne. And when he walks away, God as judge will correct him. And God as faithful one will be faithful to his promises. But notice that David will die. His sons will die. How will he have an eternal kingdom? That's the double whammy portion of here. While Saul, well Saul, while Solomon is part of this prophecy because he will come after David and he will build a house, the real fulfillment is in Christ, who has the descendant of David, the God-man, part of the, with the hypostatic union, the one who will make the atoning sacrifice, the prophet, priest, and king. He will be the descendant, the son of David, who will truly Build the house, not made of cedar and jewels, but made of the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, so that they will rightly worship and follow God. Now, that takes time. That's why it matters that God is patient. That's why it matters that God is precise. That's why it matters that God is the preserver. Because if you don't believe and understand those things, you will be tempted like David to say, hey, I need to do this. I have peace. I'm the smart one. I'm the builder. I'm the organizer. I'm going to do this. No. God is going to do this. And the proof of that is, David, you got this right before. Get it right again. And that's why you see this correction here, and it comes along with that promise. Because no, this, you're the one. David, this, what God is basically saying is, you're the one. You're the one we chose, but you aren't him. You're a picture of him. And Solomon will be a picture of him. And Hezekiah will be a picture of him. And Josiah will be a picture of him. And all of these good kings of Israel, as they rightly are worshiping and following God, will be partial pictures of him. But he is the one who will be worshipped. He is the one who will finally accomplish. He is the one who will save and sanctify his people. Now, you see David obedient to this, so you see God faithful to David. So you get the triumphs of David. You see the kindness of David to, Saul, to um, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And then you see more victories of David, 8, 9, and 10. We're moving along quickly. And then you see why David can't be the guy. It happened in the springtime, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Not your job, dude. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, that, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the son of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and she had, when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Oops. Dude, dude you already had like seven wives. How, how many women do you need? Apparently Abigail's not as hot as she used to be when she was just Nabal's widow. This is why David can't be the guy. He's a guy, and he's a good guy, but he's not the guy because at the end of the day, Sin is still present in all of humanity, and we all fall to our temptations at some point in some shape, form, or fashion. Some better, some worse, but here you go. So, you know the story. David gets Uriah to come back to try to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so he can pawn the kid off as Uriah's, and he won't do it. So David has him killed and then marries Bathsheba. Nathan shows up with the rebuke, as he rightly should. The child is the penalty. In other words, David doesn't get to build his house this way. David doesn't get to have his successes this way. So the judgment comes. Is the child punished? No. No. That child is preserved by God. That child is saved by God. This is not a judgment on the child. This is a judgment on David and his house. You don't get to multiply your kingdom by these means. Also notice all those lists of names I read off earlier, those sons and children of David born to all those other wives. Notice how they are not, I repeat, not Solomon. Who is Solomon's mother? Hmm, remember that one. So, David mourns. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now, the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. So, Literally, beloved of the Lord, Jedediah. Why? Well, because this is the plan that God's going to follow. Why? Because it's a demonstration and a testimony to the brokenness of of God, of God's people. It's a testimony to the brokenness of humanity. Just like Perez comes from Judah through Tamar, just like Boaz comes from Rahab, just like Jesse comes through the family line that includes the Moabite. We are not good and pure and holy. We're only good and pure and holy because Christ is. He is the accomplisher of our righteousness and our sanctification. He is our Savior. He is the one who upholds us. It is not because of us, it's because of Him. And God demonstrates this by saying, none of those other kids are the one, this is the one, because this is the one that really, demonstrates just how broken you people are. I mean, let's think about this. Every time Israel praises Solomon, every time they uphold and remind that Solomon was the wise king, what they're being reminded of is that wife number eight, I lost count, wife number eight through, you know, adultery and murder, that's where our king comes from? Yeah, because God is the one who is at work behind these things, not us. So, Continued war, continued victory, and now you see the problems come about. It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Ammon... I'm sorry, Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed, ha- seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, and Jon- Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Amnon said, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said, Lie down on your bed. Pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretend to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said, Please let my sister Tamar come that I may eat from her hand. So that's what happened. David sent, for the ho- sent to the house of Tamar, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother no, I'm sorry. Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight, baked the cakes, and she took a pan and dished them out before him, and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. So everyone went out. Amnon said, Bring me the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hands. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom for her brother Amnon. When she brought them to eat for him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Yes, this would be a violation of Levitical law. As for me, where could I go to get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'd be like one of the fools in Israel. Well, you know how this ends. Amnon gets her, finally, and then he hates her because, you know, it's, never, it's always amazing how much you want something, and then when you finally get it, it's not as, not as special or important as when you, you know, convinced yourself it might be. Don't make idols out of anything, children. That's a good rule. So Absalom's not happy. He finds out about it. He kills Amnon. (sighs) David banishes Absalom. Joab has to get a little sneaky so that Absalom comes back. And then Absalom basically decides that, you know, dad's probably not fit to be king anymore. It might be time for the new blood to take over. So it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 15 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is one of the tribes of Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on a part of the king. So Absalom starts to undermine, eventually moves in, and David refuses to fight him. So David makes a run for it. He's mocked. He is ridiculed on the way out, and the people are, you know, really in a mode like, what's going on here? Judgment from God. Because even though David is the king for righteousness, sin will be dealt with. And David's family has come from a disparate area, from disparate sources, and they have not been discipled well. Therefore, you're seeing the problems go along. So Absalom comes into Jerusalem, reigns in his place. You can see the... uh, the, the work of God, though. Ah. You have Ahithophel, who's priest. He gets... His advice is actually the right advice, and Absalom doesn't listen to it. Uh, Hushai, the said to, um, from, from Zadok and Abiathar... This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom, the elder of Israel. This is what I have counseled. Send quickly and tell David, do not spend the night in the fords of the wilderness. By all means, cross over, else the king of all the people who are with him will be destroyed. So Hushai is saving David. Uh, God at work here. Because Absalom doesn't take the good advice. He takes the bad advice. And David is preserved. Because, once again, David has been promised to be king. And his son will reign. But it's not going to be like this. So eventually... We get battle with Absalom. Absalom is killed, and for reasons known only to David, he's more worried about his son, who has been killed, maybe because he thinks that's the king, than he is about the men who have fought and worked bravely. So he's rebuked, and as he should be. David is restored, but the damage has been done. The, the foundations are bad. So now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, I'm sorry, Bikri, a Benjamite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. So you get. nope, I'm stepping on cords here that I don't need to step on. Hold on. So the king said to Amasa, call out the men of Judah for all for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time and he appointed him. Nothing goes right. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do, more, do us more harm than Absalom. Take your lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not, fi- does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from your sight. So Joab's men went out from went out after him, along with the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they, there was long son at Gibeah, a Amasa came to meet them. Joab dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened at his waist, and he went forward from it and fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by his beard and with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it and outpoured his innard parts to the ground, and he did not strike him again, and he died. Don't you love it? Joab's a nice guy, isn't he? So Joab does put the revolt down. Yay, go team. But you're seeing the fruit of the ruthlessness of Joab, the problems with David, You get famine because of the sins against the Gibeonites. So you get revenge against the Gibeonites because they weren't supposed to be harmed because they had a a treaty going all the way back to Joshua. And David prays in 22 for deliverance. So you see David starting to figure some of this out and starting to whittle some of these things down. But at the same token, he then takes a census where God judges. Why? Well, because in his pride, he wants to see what's going on. He wants to count the people. He wants to get his men lined up so that he knows. Because deep down, sinful people do sinful things sinfully. And at the end of the pestilence, because David cries out to God, the pestilence is stopped and an altar is built and Yahweh is worshiped in Israel. And you're going, man, this story starts out so good, but it seems to go sideways so quickly. And the answer is duh, because sinful people do sinful things sinfully. Lee, what could possibly go wrong, you may ask? And the answer is everything. Why? Because God is the one who preserves. God is the one who saves, God is the one who is faithful, and God is the one who sanctifies. And when we forget any of those things, what we end up doing is walking in ways that are counter to who God is and what he has done. Christian, this is why we have to put these things in their right perspective, because the temptations of this world are to do just that. We're doing well, we're getting things right, and then, oh yeah, why are we off the rails? Well, because we stopped doing the things that enabled us to do them well and right, and we started doing the things in our own power, and they went sideways. That's the lesson of David. That's the lesson that's going to be seen with Solomon. That's the lesson of all of the Old Testament. The warning is to check yourself before you wreck yourself, because sin hides, crouches, and devours everywhere. But if we remember who God is, and that... Our very lives are dependent upon His mercy and grace. We will see His great salvation, and we will walk faithfully, knowing that He is at work, not us. So what have we learned here today, children? Humanity cannot be trusted. Even in blessing, there is judgment. And yet, in judgment, there is still blessing. So hopefully that's useful to you. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Be glad to listen to them. Go for all that. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.